Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you on 610 AM ESPN, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, are you excited this week? I think it's been a good week so far. It, so, so we had the, the Sixers winning their first series in six years, I believe, winning at home and having quite the star crowd there with you Meek were, Mill getting out of prison. Oh, I thought you were going to say and, your, and, yourself and being come, there was the star crowd. No, I, I did not take the helicopter there. Meek Mill got the helicopter there. <laughs> he, he arrived. He <laughs> rang the bell. It was, um, it was electric. The, it was, I mean, it was absolutely amazing to see. And it, it's, it's great to see how these athletes overcame adversity. I mean, I remember we had Elton Brand on. I didn't know the story about Elton. Brand, where Elton Brand said that he, when they had nine wins and it was at the end of the season, they went in and he congra- wrote a congratulations for having the worst record ever. <laughs> And the players got so mad that they went out and won their 10th to, game. To, so that they didn't have and, it. And, and Embiid said that, that that moment was one of the moments that he realized, even though he was angry about him, Elton doing that, that it actually led to motivation for them to realize not to develop a losing culture. It, it, it really, they've, they've taken everything that, that's come along the way and, and really used it to build. And we'll have plenty to talk about in the coming weeks as they head to the and second round. Months. That That would be fun. Yes, I'm not trying to get ahead of myself here, but it was, uh, you know, and, and the thing that we like, uh, you know, we're going to get to our guests in a second, but you had your son there with you. I did. And those experiences, I mean, I remember going to a game with my dad when, when Barkley and Jordan went off each putting up near 50 points back in like the early 90s. And, and like those experiences, your son's going to remember being there. There for for the first game that Joel Embiid played at home with his dad, so it, that that's pretty cool that, that you get to do that together. It is, but it's always interesting because your references are different than my references. Because I I remember going to see Dr. J and Moses Malone and, and that group, and and you remember a whole different. But that's generation. the best part of sports is that everybody remembers their own part of it. Yes, like it doesn't matter when you come into the game, you pick it up and and you go from your point forward on sports and then learn their history mm-hmm. afterwards. But well, let, let's move on from the Sixers because. Y- I think we have a really good show today. Yeah, I'm excited. So a, a couple months ago, we, we were lucky enough, we had Doug Glanville join us, and, and we loved the conversation that we, we had with him so much that we said, why don't you come back and join us in the studio? And so today we got a special show for our listeners, and we got Doug Glanville in the studio. So thank you so much for yeah. joining us. No, it's great to be here. And I, I teleported, actually, and as I found the transportation I need to be like Harry Potter, right? You, know? <laughs> you, you, you travel too much. We'll get into all the different things that you're doing. Um, and but, different places. And different places that you're, that you're going for it. Um, you know, you've been teaching a class at Penn. Um, but our initial conversation with you was about sort of the, pl- the platform that athletes have. And so today we kind of wanted to do a special show talking about sports and social justice, which is the theme of the, the class that you have. And, and our intro originally was Colin Kaepernick and Taking a Knee, and we had talked about it at the time. But we wanted to take our listeners back. How did you find your voice to, to realize the platform that, that you had to get started with this all? You know, I'd have to say that it was passed down to me in, in a lot of respects. I mean, growing up, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and uh, it's about six miles right outside of New York. And uh, it was a town that had a history of voluntarily desegregating. That was a big moment in the 60s where they voluntarily desegregated the community, black and white, mixing together in a sixth grade class. And my mom, in particular, who was from the South, uh, was very serious about how to engage the community around uh, really learning how to bridge these differences. And so, um, you know, I grew up in that world where <clears throat> I grew up in this world where my, my mom, in particular, was always talking a lot about the importance of engagement, you know, and, and how uh, we have to learn about our history, 
have pride in our identity, but also find ways to work with many different types of people and build bridges, which really was what embodied my community in Teaneck. So I watched this activism front and center, whether it was friendship clubs and meetings across religious differences or, or, or unique uh, perspectives on on race, we we had these discussions very often at home. So um, you know, I became to get connected to this idea of having a voice and the responsibility behind it. And certainly, as a professional baseball player, ultimately you realize the platform you have and the opportunity you have to be able to sort of shed light on certain issues. So it it meshed very well because it came from a history, uh, but also just being in an environment where I had this floor to be able to address certain issues. When, when did you first f- use your voice it, it, when you became an a professional athlete? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think back to um, a lot of times my, my hometown, you know, just constantly talking about these, these challenges. I, I would say the big moment for my hometown was we had a, um, a, a shooting in my, actually after I had graduated, and I believe I was in college, you know, shortly thereafter. And it was an unarmed young black man, black child, really. He was 14, 15 in that ballpark. And, the, you know, the police, and there was you know, all this thing about having a gun and all these different things that happened. Um, <clears throat> and I don't want to misspeak on all the details, a lot to it, but it, it really ripped our town apart on some regards because of the question on whether, whether he was armed or whether it was planted and all these things, and he was climbing a fence. And it became this moment like, wait a minute, my perfect town is now really polarized. And you saw the, how fragile it was that a community could um, really be challenged in this way uh, to be divided possibly on on a single moment, right? And uh, but I, I felt the town ev- eventually elevated through that, and I think talking about that experience and how it was hurtful because of my expectation of my town, and then also seeing that it was not immune to the challenges that were were facing nationwide or regardless of uh, the demographics of your town. That sort of crystallized a moment of like you can't keep your foot off the accelerator you have to continue to press forward on these issues to make sure the engagement is is there because as soon as you step back and get complacent about working together uh, that's when everything can hit you and you won't have any tools or resources to tap to be able to see yourself through it It, so obviously your your life experience has prepared you for being open to opportunities for engagement and understanding and then you become a a pro athlete and how does it feel when you when you hear somebody say look i just want to watch you play baseball stick to sports you've come from your own experiences that you bring here you have this platform that you want to use and then you've got a fan who's like i only care how you swing the bat well, that's uh, and, and more and more that stick to sports is getting challenged, and I, I think that's great that it is getting challenged. I mean, I've obviously categorically rejected that in my personal life. Um, I understand where a fan may be coming from when they say that. You know, all right, when I sat down and watched the Phillies as a kid or the Mets, the Yankees, local, I'm like, yeah, all right, I just want to see like Mike Schmidt hit home runs and you know do his thing, and I never thought about, oh, wait a minute, there's I won't say never, but there was like this person behind it until you start to engage players on a more intimate level and you, you get to know people and you say, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot more to this person. And and they say, uh, sort of the Charles Barkley situation, right? He took all this heat for I'm saying, not a role model. I'm not a role model. 
So and he got beat down for that. But then like, well, what is a role model supposed to do if you, if you don't stand up for injustice? What's your what what's your point? So it's kind of like an athlete gets caught in this wedge at times of being you know supposed to represent in certain areas, but then don't talk about certain issues. And and I think part of it is you know I had. For my class, Sean Doolittle and Adam Jones joined one day uh, by video, and both of them at the same time. And Sean was talking about how when he first got involved in being active, he said, well, I was you know, supporting the military. And then he looked back, he said, well, a lot of what I was supporting was not really controversial. He's like, well, nobody wants homelessness, nobody wants cancer. Nobody. So it's easy to, and it's not easy, but those are non-controversial issues. Then he talked about like, uh, policing and, and race or, you know, then it's like, oh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. But the, the approach to those issues are very similar uh, in characteristics about what can be successful about engaging. Yes, they're tough topics, but a lot of it, once it brings an identity, you know, then, then a lot of times you get a lot of alarm. But to me, those are, if not more important in a lot of regards, because identity flows through all these issues, right? Whatever, whatever it may be, and uh, and I think the best way to deal with it is you got you got to take it on. Do you think it's a lack of comfort that people have? You know, when you're like everybody can agree about we don't want cancer, we don't want, but then you get into the more controversial issues. Is it that it hasn't been talked about enough because of it, and therefore people aren't comfortable engaging around that issue, and and therefore the idea of stick to sports going away helps to break that down? What do you attribute it to? In terms of the stick to sports sort of yeah, I mean it's. It's sort of the sense of like I just want to be in a certain space. You know, we hear about oh, I had a long day. I just want to put my feet up and I just want to watch the, you know, the football game, and that's it. Um, you, you end up running into uh, this collision. Now, certainly, how it's presented, there's certain issues that are are safer to discuss, uh, that are not going to sort of evoke this feeling of like you're infringing upon my entertainment value, so to speak. But the other factor I consider too is, uh, and I'm in I'm in media. The 24-hour news cycle on top of now the 24-hour social news cycle has, to me, a natural byproduct that you're going to know more about these players. I mean, you can't have all this access and tweet and be in people in 20, you know, cameras everywhere and paparazzi and not know more about them. Because eventually as an athlete, you go, wait a minute, all right, there's all this access to me all the time, so why don't I just tell you about my day? And I'll tell you what I, what I just experienced. I got pulled over or whatever it is, right? So you have these, re- I think there's a natural collision happening because when you open up people's lives to the degree that uh, it's expected to, you know, today especially, then you are going to see all of what this person is experiencing, not just you know picking this piece like, oh, I just wanna see your swing. Well, how do I do that when I'm from Venezuela and I'm Jose Altuve or I'm some, and I, my country is like on fire or whatever. How do I separate that? You know? mm-hmm. So I think it's just harder and harder with the access and the, the real free, free flowing communication we have today. Well, with regard to the access, I, I look as somebody who wasn't an athlete and wasn't in the, in the public spotlight this way, the hypersensitivity and the hyperanalysis of having your life defined for you the way p- other people want to define it would be frustrating to me. Uh, I would want to, I would want to frame my own life 
with the way that I feel, not the way that people just want to portray me. And and I thought it was interesting that you, you had written an article in the New York Times a while back where you said, I would, I would just like to watch a game too, but the athlete may just want to catch a cab without being passed over. She may just want to be a champion without being compared to a man. He may just want to honor his fallen brother's service to his country, and she may just want to not be judged by what she's wearing. And I, I thought that was a... a an incredibly interesting way to look at it is because people, you know, we all sit there and say we're going and we're spending our free time going to watch athletes, but we don't think that the other 21 hours a day is is when you're looking to just live your life. You're in the spotlight and it's intense for those three hours. And, and after that, you want to be able to catch a cab without somebody looking at the way that you look and judging you about whether you, they're going to pick you up or something like that. And and people should be more accepting of the fact that that your lives outside of sports matter to the point that you want to frame the way that you live and you want to make it better. I, I think the way you frame it matters, and I, I think the way that you've you've addressed it is a great way to put it. Yeah, and No, and I think the... Um Everyone can relate to fairness, right? Everybody can relate to feeling like you're treated unfairly and you want justice. And it's, it's a universal human emotion uh, in some places of right in some regards, right, in, in the United States. And um, so I think that's, it's not a far stretch to understand that you're going to have frustration. And, and I know we say a lot, well, you know, the, the, these players are human. And you hear that to some degree. But... You know, to actually embody it and understand and feel it through their lens, as you said, controlling the, the, the message about having an experience. The cab one, I've had tens of those experiences. Like, it's like commonplace. I mean, every time I was in Chicago and at the border where you, you could have gone north or could have gone south, they assumed I was going south, which was nothing wrong with that. And I, I, never, I hardly ever got a cab. I mean, that was just normal. And um, so these are experiences that you start to feel like, you have a platform to talk about them. And look, I, there's many ways to address it. And I can't critique someone who feels like this is the only tool and way in which to approach it because I could do a lot of things. I could teach a course or you know, I have options and I'm very fortunate to be able to have many avenues to approach it. I'm very much into a collaborative approach to it to find ways that we can identify with each other through similar lenses that we can say, oh, all right, this is an issue for all of us. And it's very important that uh, we pay attention to hashtag me too because this is a human issue, right? This is, this is uh, important. So, um, but when we get into to like, well, no, that's your issue. That you know, you're, or, or you're making all this money, and therefore you should not complain about anything, right? And uh, things like that. Yeah, and right. But, you have all the opportunities right. in the world. You should just forget about everything else that happens because they're giving you a nice paycheck, and therefore you should just go do your job. Yeah, but as it, I put that in air quotes, and that, that's the part that that for me, I, I don't always get. Like, how do you get somebody to empathize with that if they haven't had the cab not pick them up? Like, if, if you're a person who always has the cab stopped for you when you put your hand up? How do you make that person, when you've been in the situation where assumptions have been made, understand where you're coming from if, if they have never been in those shoes? Well, I mean, my approach has always been through a, a sort of focusing on the common humanity in it. It's not, it's like black, white, whatever. Anybody who experiences something uh, through that can relate to it because we've all experienced something <laughs> of injustice, right? Something that made us feel like we were not being treated fairly and it's a bad feeling. But it's worse in a lot of regards when it's directly attributable to your identity or who you are. I mean, just simply like, I'm black, 
I'm not picking you up. And I've had, I wrote about multiple experiences. I mean, I, I went to Los Angeles airport and just try to get a cab working for ESPN, trying to walk out there. And the guy tells me to go take the bus. It's $19. The cab guy like points across the street. Like what? I mean, I'm just trying to get a cab, dude. Like that's so. These things are not fantasy. These things are not. This is a common experience in a lot of different arenas. So yes, I understand that to some degree as an athlete. Yeah, I used to go and put the bat on, and I could kind of forget about certain things too, right? I escape, mm-hmm. but um, but more and more. Uh, the awareness is there. And, and when you have friends and family and people who just are going through things too and you feel like you could add something to that conversation, you could change the circumstance. I mean, I was able to change the law through a lot of help in the state of Connecticut because of an experience I had with getting stopped in my own driveway, being accused of being a suspect and all this. You know, and and the, the situation was just a snow shoveler. It was a guy who shoveled snow and the person had a, a, a beef with how it was resolved and it was one town over. The officer crossed over town lines, and I was out there shoveling, and I apparently fit the description. The guy asked me if I was trying to make money shoveling people's driveway, and I was standing in my own driveway. That was just a normal day on a snow day, you know. Like so, um, so that led to ultimately a, a law that, that got passed through a lot of collaboration, and um, so I've seen change happen. LAX has checked their policy now about uh, discrimination. It's pretty strong, and it's always been strong. So there's 90 million passengers a year in, in Los Angeles that fly into LA right now that have no idea that part of the reason that their discrimination has gone down as much is just because I decided to make a phone call and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I wasn't a superstar player or whatever, I just, uh, but I, I recognize the privilege I had to have the access. And that difference is gonna help everybody, not just African-Americans, just, it's gonna help everybody have a better society. So um, that, is the, that is the motivation for me. So one of the things you did say was, was that you have all these avenues, and one of the avenues you've decided to take is to teach at the University of Pennsylvania this semester. Mm-hmm. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what that class was like, what the experience was like? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was sort of a moment where, I mean, I was part of the third or whatever wave of layoffs at ESPN, and I was you know, disappointing, and I, I kind of said, well, where, what am I going to do next? And I started writing down a lot of topics that I wanted to dig deeper in while I was working there or just in general. And um, I looked at it, and I was like, wow, this is a course. You know, this is, because I've always been passionate about social justice and, you know, raising and elevating the conversation about humanity, but also just an opportunity to weave it to sports. And, and you see all the activism and, and, you know, sort of everybody's been energized in the last couple of years. So, um, so I said, this is a course. I started pitching it all over the place, Connecticut, and then my alma mater at Penn was like, yeah, let's, let's run with it. And, you know, my hopes was just to, discuss and learn just as much from the students as I could teach. And I think it became this really reciprocal experience where we we went through the history of social justice. We looked at the legal constructs of it. We looked at the tools of communication. Uh, how do you use social media for change? Uh, we looked at movements. And then we looked at how to craft messaging around it, almost mm-hmm. like communication. And then ultimately how you manage things once you click send when you're on the other side of it. And uh, our last class was at Citizens Bank Park, so that was pretty cool. But um, Did you actually sit on the field? Well, we didn't sit on the field. I thought about that, but we were in the dugout for, you know, th- we had 30 minutes in the dugout in the locker room. It was pretty cool. So um, that's that's where it came from. But I, the other thing was that I was inspired by a lot of athletes 
now that I've been through it, like working on laws in Connecticut and different things, I realize that a lot of players don't necessarily have the resources to figure out how do you actually change something, right? You could, you could be a symbol, you could raise issues, but when you're dealing with like state and local government, or how do you actually change laws? How do you, if that's the solution you want? So I thought it'd be great to be a resource for um, athletes, students, anybody who is interested in learning how to actually turn these ideas into to real active change. And so that was where I, I saw my role in, in potentially providing that. So you come up with the idea for the class, you go through the semester, and you do a little self-analysis. Is it what you hope for? Is it, is it what you wanted the people to take away and what, what you were hoping you could get out of this type of class? Because I happen to think that this is a conversation that isn't going away. Um, you know, a lot of the things that you said at the start of the conversation, if you take your name away from them, are headlines that you could read on TV this afternoon. And, and so uh, the intersection of athletes using these platforms, we're, we've seen that a lot here in the city with Philadelphia. Um, you know, athletes Malcolm Jenkins, some of the Eagles, a lot of the Sixers and their involvement, different teams. So what advice do you give now that you've taught this class going forward to continue this conversation and opportunity you started? Well, you know, as I mentioned before about keeping your foot on the accelerator, it's important. Injustice is, is everywhere. It, there's a lot of inequity. And uh, I think one of the quotes which I might hack up, is, it says, um, you know, equal rights for me does not mean less rights for you. It is not a pie. You know, that was a quote that I, uh, I read the other day. And I thought that was really fitting because there's a sense of like you're taking something from me. Um, and as opposed to like, you know what, this is going to elevate the collective in a bigger way for all of us. It's like it's a team, right? If you have a team and you have one guy get, getting extra skills to make him better and then you bring that into the fold and it sort of ripples, it's an exponential value to your team. I mean, that is a perfect sports uh, analogy, which is why that's the class fit really well with understand how sports is this sort of proxy, this sort of avenue to get into to social justice as we look at an environment that is where you expect some level of equality, right? The rules, you expect sort of a fairness. They're constantly tweaking, you know, steroids, what, all these things trying to make it fair. That is a good example for, for society. That leads into my next question. Given the environment, not just the fairness, but also some of the controversy out there and the, the lack of agreement at times around certain things, what advice do you give athletes and fans that are looking to engage in these larger conversations coming out of sports? You know, I would go back to that point about um, be informed, get informed as much as you can. I mean, the passion is important. The movement is important. The protest may be important. But then it says next steps. And there's a lot of slow work. It's maybe a little boring, unsexy somewhat when you're sitting in, you know, a hearing on a bill that's about to be passed. But that is important. You know, it takes a multi-pronged approach to things to, to really make change. And, and I'm always very interested in the, the, the importance of listening to each other, right? Talking and listening. I mean, it's very important to engage people that don't agree with you. Very important. I mean, you, it resets you. It sort of, okay, maybe make my argument differently. Maybe that is important. It also informs you. And a lot of times there's not necessarily two sides. I had this issue with the police in Connecticut. But in the end... I had a great history with police. They, they were part of my, uh, they were coaches in my baseball team growing up. They protected us when I was with the Phillies. Uh, you know, one officer pulled me over one time when I was playing for the Phillies and said, you're an asset to the community. That like helped me. You know, there's, there's all, I have many examples. I know that's not always the case, but I was able to tap the idea that, that there is a lot to learn about what their experience is that can inform you and how to make 
better change, right? And so I would encourage that aspect of being informed, but part of being informed is listening to many different perspectives. I, I guarantee you'll find that there's a lot more common ground than is assumed. So, so now that the class is over, how do you continue this work? Are you going to set up a foundation? Are you going to set up a business where, where you can help athletes and, and kind of go through this process? Or, Well, I can answer that pretty directly, actually. Yeah. There's, um, well, originally, it was a, there was a three-pronged approach to this. So number one was the course. But I wanted to weave that into student life also, almost like you know, engage students about things that they want to be active about, advocacy work, so sort of apply it beyond the classroom. Then I was hoping to have a center or an institution around it to be able to support the being this resource for not just students but also athletes. Now, professional athletes, for example, was um, is a great sort of avenue, a great connecting point I have. For example, the, the players' associations, and you talked about Jenkins and players who are very involved. So I thought that there's definitely a way to bring it on. Now, currently I'm trying to figure out maybe teaching this again in the in the fall and I'm you know looking at different possibilities on where and how uh, because there's you know you look at what I taught this spring it was about the communications aspect mm -hmm. the next step is well what if you want to change policy well that's a that's a whole nother section to to get into so we're going to do an abrupt shift here yep. because uh, rather than going to break um, I, I have been informed by Jeff yes uh, and your Twitter profile that you're a huge Holland Oates fan. Oh yeah, that's that's nationally known, I hope. Um, Jeff has <laughs> Jeff known. has many more questions, but I, I believe he also has somebody to help you out with it set up as so, well. So so I tried the I think it was yesterday I tweeted to you about that they had a new song. Yes. And and you said you've known about it for six months. <laughs> well not quite so, six, but yes yeah, I was well you said uh, <laughs> I, I believe you brought up osmosis and telekinesis <laughs> is, is how you know about their songs. So I sat there thinking, should we have a little trivia, Hall and see if we see if we can stump you? And you know, I talked to you before Certainly. we went on the air, and and you said that that might be difficult. So, I'm gonna just cede my ability to to do that. And we actually have somebody who I think can stump you, because I think he knows more about Hall and Oates than than you might. It's possible. Uh, do, do we have? If you're like his we, twin brother, you probably know more. Um, do, do, do we have anybody have on someone? the line? There's someone. Uh, yeah, man. Um, this is John from Philly. John, John from Philly. Do you recognize that, Doug? John from Philly. John from no. Philly. Is he is he from like Wales? Uh, North Wales. Uh, yeah, man. I'm a, I'm a big Doug Glanville fan. <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> we we decided that that we would put you together and uh, let you talk a little bit about your your Hall and Oates fandom here. Yeah, I'm a little suspicious. This this guy's voice sounds very familiar. Like, yeah, so who does it, this might be the first trivia question you can answer? Well, is whose voice is it? This? Sounds like John slash Oates though. That may be <laughs> correct. I don't know how you figured that out so quickly there. So, so on the line now, we have John Oates of, of Daryl Hall and John Oates fame. And, and we're, we're hoping that he might be able to ask a, a question to Doug or two that he might be able to stump. I'll, I'll give it a try, but I don't think I can stump, stump Doug Glendale. Uh, these questions are way too easy. Um, All right. Okay, Doug, um, I went to Temple University. Where did I get my degree in? Uh, it's um, journalism communications. Oh, boy. Oh. Yeah, I figured you This is way too easy for Doug. <laughs> All right. 
Um, let's see here. This, this would be like if I was pitching to Doug Glanville. This is what <laughs> he'd be hitting these ones. Is, it, right is this now. a meatball you're going to throw, or is there going to be a fastball? <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a very soft meatball. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, 1983, Hall and Oates recorded um, a Christmas a, a cover of a Christmas classic, Jingle Bell Rock, with Daryl Hall singing lead. But what was on the flip side of the 45? Uh, the flip side was John Oates singing lead. <laughs> Are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was so excited. He thought you were going to be able to be stumped by some of these. Uh, no, he, he brought in ringers, and he's got nothing for you here. <laughs> John, John, you got a better one than the ones I gave you? <laughs> um, no, I, 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 think, um, I, think, I think we're good. Doug, Doug could probably handle all this. Well, uh, it's just, it's just always, always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Doug, how you feeling? I'm great, man. Yeah, good to hear from you. We're talking a lot of Philly stuff here. so he, He's very excited about your new song, actually, John, if you want to yeah. tell us how that came about a little bit. Doug, Doug thinks yeah. he's been channeling the lyrics already, apparently, but he, he knew well, what the course was It's one of those things that just came. Actually, uh, Pat Monahan from Train uh, came up with the idea from some other songwriters that he was working with, and um, and then we ran with it. So um, it, it was really kind of a cool thing. It just came out of, no, no baseball pun intended, but it came out of left field. Um, it was uh, it was just one of those things. We didn't actually expect to, to find it. We found the song, tweaked it a bit, made it our own, and uh, now it's become uh, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And uh, with the, with this big tour coming up, uh, it's it's great to have a, a, some new new stuff on the radio. And you're going to be making a stop in Philly on that new big tour, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Hoagie Nation um, number two. Um, we did it last year. Had a great uh, great day in Philly, and uh, this year we got amazing acts. We've got Fitz in the tantrums, and of course Daryl and I are gonna, you know, play. And Train's gonna play. Uh, we've even got some some uh, Nashville. We're branching out. We got Marty Stewart and the Fabulous Superlatives, who are one of my favorite groups. Uh, they're playing, and we're gonna have a bunch of great uh, young Philly bands as well. And when's and when's that gonna be? Uh, that's uh, at the end of May. Uh, I believe it's Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, and we have May 26th. Doug's giving the thumbs up here. He seems to like yeah, the lineup yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm hearing, well, we're curious about, like, you know, the collaboration. Is it, is it going to lead to this, like, new Hall & Oates album? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, Doug, I, I, you know, we, we kind of talked about it. I don't know, man. Albums, I don't think an album's kind of like a, a complete thought. Um, I think it's a singles world. And, uh, you know, I think what this could do is open the door for possible future singles. Uh, because really, in, in the way this world's gone, you know, people's attention spans pretty short, and everybody likes to make their own playlists, and singles just seem to work. Um, I've, you know, when it comes to an album, you know, I, I made an album just recently, my Arkansas album, which is more of a theme. It's got more of a theme and a kind of a, a really a concept. I mean, I hate to use that word, but it's true. That's what it is. And I think that's what an album's for. So if you have like a complete thought and you really want to do it, then an album's fine. But for me and Daryl, and you know, and the fact that we got to work with Pat Monahan on this. Uh, I think that's what makes this song unique. So, so I think what we we're trying to get to though is we're begging for more new music. We, the, I believe Philly Forget well, Me Not is say, the I, first new song since hey, 2002. Say, never say never, man. <laughs> never say never. You know, we, we might roll out a couple singles. Jeff's been walking around here singing the song. He, him and Doug are like <laughs> tweeting at each other on Twitter, trying so, to go the, over well, what the, the lyrics are. Well, yeah, the only I thing I need is it. to get in your studio. I got, I got to like, can I get on a track in here somehow? Like background <laughs> vocals or play the play, play the triangle? I could 
play the triangle or the cowbell in the background or something. Well, I'll tell you what, Doug. Why don't you write us another hit, man, and then we'll do it. All right. How's that sound? I think Doug thinks you need more cowbell. <laughs> I just been waiting. Yeah, more cowbell. I just never, been waiting. Never enough, never enough cowbell. Never enough cowbell. I just been waiting to say that on the radio. So, so um, John, John, you grew up in Philadelphia. Did you go to a lot of sporting events here? Yeah, I mean, well, I actually grew up in a little town called North Wales, which is, you know, northwest of Philadelphia, about 25 miles outside of town. Um, yeah, when I was a little kid, you know, um, I actually got to see the A's uh, play, um, you know, back in the day. Uh, Connie Mack Stadium, and, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm an old dude, so, you know, uh, I got to do that. I went to see the Eagles, of course, um, you know, uh, saw, saw a little bit of basketball. I wasn't much of an ice hockey fan at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, I was pretty focused on music in the 70s, so when I was living there. So n- now you're out there, you're, you're touring again. How does it feel when, uh, when, when we know somebody like Doug Glanville's coming in and, and we reach out and we say, hey, we, he's a pretty fan. We'd love to have you come on and talk to him. Is that, is that kind of fun? I mean, we enjoyed putting it's you together. Good. He's got a smile from ear to ear right now that I wish we weren't just no, on radio. Uh, <laughs> hey, man. Doug has been waving the, the flag uh, for me and Daryl for many, many years, and uh, it's been a, really a pleasure to get to know him and to hang out with him. And he um, he's a great writer, and I love his sports writing. Uh, now that you know, and and I just have so much respect for him now that you know he's uh, stopped uh, playing and and you know he's transitioning to another part of his life. I think it's really cool. And he and I, I think, have both supported each other in, in a lot of uh, you know kind of side projects, so to speak. Uh, which are now becoming real projects. So um, that's what it's all about, you know, and, and uh, it's, it, he's just a great guy, and uh, it's been great to be, become friends over the years. Yeah, and it's been fun. I mean, the, one of the funny stories was uh, my, my sixth grade teacher was married to John Sticks, who was an editor of Guitar Magazine. And that's kind of officially wow. how I met John and Daryl and everybody, because he, he made a bet. He said, if you make it to the major leagues, I'll introduce you to the Hall of Notes. This is like 19, this is 1983. <laughs> so that's how it happened. So you actually have met him before. Well, no, I didn't meet them oh, then. Yeah. Oh, okay. I met them later, but oh, okay. it was at Radio City uh, Music Hall, actually, backstage. And, and I remember John was very cool backstage talking, and, and the first song started playing, you know, the, the instrumental part. I was like, well, don't you have to go on? He's like, no, nah, I got about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so so, we, uh, so we, we clicked then, but that... Um, that bet, I, I cashed in on a bet from when I was 13. So And it's still driving your, your tweets now. Yeah, I totally. mean, you're out there with yeah. your own trivia. and Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Well, we, we are definitely glad we could bring you guys together. Uh, definitely fun for us to see Doug's reaction to it. <laughs> and I look forward to having you in Philly here, John. And yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be looking forward John. to May 26th at the Hoagie Nation. I, so, think, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Something tells you may have to watch it out for Doug crashing like the to. stage, too. <laughs> with his triangle. <laughs> <laughs> John, thanks so much for calling in. We really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a great one. Hey, Doug, why don't we uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a little more. As we head to break, we'll give you a little bit of the Hollow Notes new song. Are you looking for a lifeline? Verizon New Jersey Shares Communication Lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in New Jersey, those who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills. Want to know how to apply? 
All you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.NewJerseyShares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon Residential Landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares, keeping the lines of communication open for you and your family. Attention sports fans. The Heart of Sports is excited to be the media partner with the newly formed Athletic Business Alliance for their kickoff event being held on May 8th at Ron Jaworski's Ramblewood Country Club in Mount Laurel. Players from across all sports have been invited to connect with the Alliance's player-to-player network. If you'd like to get involved, sponsorship opportunities include program advertising and tickets. Visit abagamechangers.net or call 856-673-1911. Welcome back to the Heart of Sports. Jeff didn't even talk over me as we came back there. He must not have realized that the music came back on, Jeff. Yeah, what can I tell you? <laughs> so that was a fun little surprise for you. Oh, yeah, that's a thrill. I mean, it's, you know, think about, like, we talk about sports athletes, but, you know, obviously as kids, we had our own people that we looked to for inspiration. Hall and Oates, you know, Kiss on My List got it started in the early 80s. But then to get to know them and see, uh, you know, especially John, just be, you know, become a friend. It's, um, it's been a thrill. You know, it's, it's, you know, just like when Gary Maddox, I got to meet Gary, and I was like, wow, he came, he came to my wedding. But um, what's it like when that happens? I mean, that's that's not on the social justice conversation. But I mean, you know, for us, Jeff and I never really hosted a, a sports show before. We got the opportunity years ago, and so you get to meet some of the athletes that are the, the people that you watched. You're an athlete, and you get to play with and against some of the people that you watched coming up. What's that like for you as an athlete to get to experience it and then to see the reaction of other people who looked up to you coming up when they get that excitement? Well, it's surreal. I mean, it really is surreal. It's out of body. I mean, it, you know, I remember when my locker was right next to Ryan Sandberg's in spring training in Chicago. I was like, oh, this is like so mind-blowing, right? And But that is, that's the feeling. You still are a fan of the game. And, and I think having that experience and then becoming an established major league player and then seeing fans react to you that way, you have a different respect for it. You understand. You know, that's sort of what I said with John. Like, I, I I, just to have the opportunity to give back what their music gave to me, you know, in so many different moments growing up is, is a gift. That's the gift. Because you know? I can, you know, thank him for all the music and the work and, and you know, and, and, and turn out, you know, just to have a good relationship. So uh, I think it's the same in sports, you know, and, that, and that's how why it's important when you talk about social justice, like how these players have this kind of impact and they can impart it and pass it on in such powerful ways that it, uh, it, it just remains to be a central part of why you, you should not be shutting up and dribbling or whatever, whatever it is when you have the opportunity. We were talking during the break a little bit, and um, you said your last class was was sort of about making sure that the message comes across correctly. And, and obviously, our conversations with you started during Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, and the message around that obviously was co-opted some by people who who wanted to take it in a different direction. You've written extensively about this. Um, you've done your own analysis of why you still stand for the flag. We've we've read those those in-depth pieces. What's your take on where it stands now? Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job. Seattle's maybe gonna possibly sign him for the fifth time. Thinking about it until there's fan blowback. The conversation wasn't about why he took a knee. It became about the knee taking and the appropriateness of the timing. How for somebody who's trying to encourage more engagement, dialogue and conversation, 
do you keep the message focused on the productive parts of the conversation? Because it's so easy for people to fall back on the things that divide us and then shut down that conversation. Yeah. No, it's, it's difficult. <clears throat> it's difficult in that you um, have to, you know, we talk about co-opting, right? That was one of the classes we, we got into and the many ways you can have your message co-opted. And it doesn't necessarily have to be from, quote unquote, the other side or enemies. You, you know, people say, oh, oh, here's an opportunity to shed light on all these other things, right? So it, how do you protect that message? It's very challenging, but certainly being informed helps. I think it also helps to have many people support you and kind of come into the fold with that story and talking about it. You know, I know when I worked on the, the, the bill and the law in Connecticut, I wanted to talk to people who had similar experiences. So that wasn't just about me and my own edification, but also just to to make sure that it's really reflective of a voice of many people. Uh, that that helped. And But surrounding yourself with people who are really informed on the issue so that anytime it sort of veers one way, you could say, oh, well, here, you know, you can sort of re- enforce that and it's not just coming from you um so that you know because when you become sort of the iconic symbol the one it's kind of easy to attack one person right oh well you know <clears throat> Kaepernick says he said that he wore these he did this you know it's, it's a lot easier but um but I think there's a natural connection to why things get co-opted you know you want to change the subject you want to sort of talk about the timing and all these other things instead of getting at the issue and there's a reason for that for sure but it, but is it also partly about the messenger and making sure that the messenger continues to say say to to be out there and not allow somebody to co-opt the message because one of the, one of the issues that I saw with Colin Kaepernick was he he was the first but not the last person to kneel down but then after that he didn't seem to be out there explaining his position which which allows the oxygen to fill to fill the room with people that that are are trying to co-op the message or trying to knock down the message it seems to me that it would have been better if he would have done what he did and then continued to be out there as much as humanly possible discussing it instead of just doing it from week to week. I didn't get the impression that that he knew where to take it next. And and sometimes that's what happens. When you stand up for something you believe strongly, you may not know what's next. You don't know how people are going to react. I think it's also a lot to put that on one person you know I think maybe he recognized that to some degree about like the the scope and the magnitude of it I mean I'm sure he knew that it was going to be ruffle a lot of feathers for sure but um but yeah the the idea of sometimes well first of all he went up against the president of the United States I mean you, you, it's very difficult to to sort of it's the, it's fight, the ultimate megaphone right that you're fight, shouting yeah at, I mean right. you, you know that's not an easy um person to uh, sort of overcome directly by like I'm going to out talk you and out tweet you or something like that. So you had to have a lot of diverse approaches in your playbook, and I think that is why I talk a lot about the many different approaches because because it, to change that circumstance, like okay, let's take police brutality that term. What does that actually even mean, right? You, so you need to define it. You need to put parameters. If you're going to change laws or training, you have to actually identify well what what leads to this. Well, there's, there's so much more to it, and right? to discuss it in a way where you're not painting with a broad brush because I think that's when people close their ears or get their backs up against when they feel like sweeping statements are being made against everybody and they're like well I know somebody who's good so that can't be true and it's like just because you have this issue that has to be dealt with doesn't mean that everybody is involved in that 
Right, and, and never is the case everybody. I think, and what the challenge is as a, a person of color, for example, is that same feeling of like, well, you know, can I say like every taxi driver has? No, I've had, you know, I mean, I, you know, so there's the generalization that sort of can, can sort of undermine your message. But there's also when people are trying to shock and bring awareness because we look back before and it's like, well, I know people brought up these issues before in these challenges and, and a lot of it just got largely ignored. So, you know, he's like, well, I could do the same old playbook. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was sort of his calculus, right? And it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily what I would have done, especially as a baseball player, but not, I'm not saying I say that there's anything wrong with his choice because it's peaceful protest. But I know that for me, I just felt like I had other avenues, right? And I could, that I could leverage that's that. And I was retired and all these other, so that is, that is part of it. But it is, it's a lot, it's, you know, it's a lot on one person, which is why I I emphasize the collaborative. And by the way, who could be quote unquote, the other side is a necessary part of the solution. You know, you can't, you, you can't address police brutality without addressing the police and the police are part of that solution, right? So there's really no easy, you know, no way around that. And, and that's why I'm very big on engaging many different perspectives. Well, that's why I always, I've always thought community, I mean, we're kind of straying a little bit, but I think it's an interesting conversation about com- community policing because I know that you've written about the you know, you had coaches that were basic, that were police officers and things like that. When police are in the community, that means you're interacting with them, not just in a an adversarial setting. You're getting to know them on a day to day basis. I mean, there was even a, a viral video about a police officer. I I think it was in Chicago where he was dancing in in this in this area and and just connecting with people makes it easier to understand that and, and just have a dialogue as opposed to always looking at someone in an adversarial situation. Right. Well, and it's compounded by what we're dealing with all the, the stereotyping and the bias, right? Because your bias is only compounded when you're in an environment that's unfamiliar, right? You don't right. know anybody. It's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to default to like these basic images about black men or whatever it is, right? So, so yeah, that, that community policing and that sense of engagement is important, you know, to really, and it's like, that's true for everything. When you have exposure, especially like a team setting, we talked about this over and over again, and, and you have positive engagements, so you're working together towards a common goal. And it's not the superficial interactions, but it's actually like, that's, that's my, you know, that's the guy I'm playing with. It makes a big difference. And, and there's, there's a lot of segregated um, sections of our world in many regards, some intentional, some not, that make it very difficult to understand different perspectives. And and that's why you you sit there and you go with sports, you know, when people, back to what we started with, when people say, uh, you know, just shut up and play, the fact is, is, is that sports was really a catalyst for changing the way a lot of society worked. You know, Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and all of that it happened because of sports and, and and it helped with society. And I think that when people say shut up and play, they don't realize how important sports is outside of the actual game to how society works and how society can be successful. Well, it has a, a deeply I've seen it firsthand, certainly, but it, it has a deep impact. I mean, a lot of the students in my class were athletes. They may not have been may not end up professional, but they are athletes and they relate to that teamwork. And it's an important platform. And I understand, like, you know, when you choose to spend your money, you choose to spend your money in a certain way. And you 
may decide you don't want to talk about these issues. But sometimes you don't, because we're in our smaller space, you don't see the sort of historic, like you said, Jackie Robinson, all the doors that opened up for some of the players that you love today to have the opportunity to even be on the court or on the field. <laughs> I mean, it's all connected. So, um, you know, figuring out how to move forward, we, we talk a lot about that, like how sports can continue to play a role and still also f- where everybody is feeling like they have the room and the bandwidth as fans to, to, to be uh, at the table. I mean, it's a challenge, but it's certainly something that uh, can be done. I think it's important that there's people like you that take on that challenge, though, uh, because, you know, we talk about Kaepernick as a messenger and, and you know, it's important that, that not only is the message out there, but that, that messengers who are recognized uh, continue to to convey it to people. You know, your, your writings that are out there, your classes that you're teaching. It keeps the conversation going. It moves it forward to the next step. The advocacy with the legislature, try and get laws changed. It's you don't become the person that's complaining about the problem. You become the, per- the person that's identifying and trying to come up with a solution to the problem. It's harder to demagogue a messenger when they're actively working to resolve the issue that they're raising their message about. And I think that's part of the problem sometimes is that people look at messengers as they're just trying to get attention. And after they get the attention, then what? It's, it's people like you who walk the walk and talk the talk and, and, and back it up and, and really take that dialogue to the next level and take it to different forums and venues that, that may not be used to having those conversations. It was why we wanted to have this conversation on the show, because the only way to, to deal with and, and come to grips with some of these things and come to some agreements is to talk about it, is to hear each other's stories and to ask each other's questions and to understand what role can an athlete play? I mean, I, you know, Jeff coached his kid's team. I, you know, I looked up to athletes growing up and I, I would have followed some of the things they did. And so for somebody that has a kid that follows the model of Doug Glanville, they're going to be concerned about what's going on in their community and neighborhood. That's the type of role model I want for my kid who is going to recognize the importance of their role in the community and society. And, and so for sports, like I find it funny because you end up with so many people supporting teams that, that never would have talked to each other other than the fact that they're fans of the same rooting interest. They come into a stadium together. They're in a bar together. They're, they're out someplace together. And they may not ever come across each other in a different walk of life, yet they, they come across each other for the common goal of rooting on a sports team. And it just I think it's really cool what you do and, and how you do it. I appreciate that. I mean, it's, and it's like anything else, like music and art. There's so many ways that this creative space and I consider athletes in, in that space uh, to, to bring us together much more than to divide us. And I know, look, it's, I'm in a space now later in my career, many years past. You know, I know as a player, when you're in the current environment, it, it's a lot harder to even know what's going on. It's happening so quickly. So I know that it's, it's, it's difficult when you're a current player, how the demands on your time and how to figure out how to navigate this when your agent's talking to you and you're trying to figure, you're trying to get your next contract or whatever it is. But, um, but I think that that awareness is, to me, m- happening a lot sooner for athletes. They're younger, you know, the, you saw with Parkland students. And, I mean, there's a young activists out there. There's that, a social consciousness there's a, among people who are more connected right now, it seems, because those conversations are being had. Jeff's, friend, Jeff's son's friends are having conversations that Jeff and I didn't have with our friends when we were going through school. At that I, th- I think this generation coming up, the teenagers and and below, I think they're going to be a much more active generation. So I think it's important for people of our generation to help them 
get there. So that's what, when I when I ask about Colin Kaepernick, it seems to me that while Kaepernick took the message somewhere, and I think he can still be a voice in it, people like Malcolm Jenkins and what they're doing in combination with the NFL to, to get together a fund to then start discussing these things is going to be the next step. And I think the ne- then the next group of athletes that are coming up are going to need to take that mantle. It can't stop. It, every time somebody says, uh, you know, this just happened, it didn't just happen. We, we've watched now 70, 80 years of athletes having a vocal role in changing society. Sure. And it's ne- it should never stop. That, that's what people don't understand. This didn't just happen last year. Right, now, I mean, well, I saw an interview with Gloria Steinem and Harry Belafonte on time. But three minutes is worth watching. And they asked her, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to give your torch up or you're going to pass on your torch. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to use my torch to light other torches, you know. That's a great thing. And and so I think it's like that example of sort of passing things on and, you know, trying to make a better society. And anybody can relate to that as, you know, I have kids and you just want them to be in a place that they're treated fairly or just respected and seen beyond their identity, even though their identity is important to them, you know, just, and that's, you know, it's a lifelong battle for humanity it's, and it will continue. And athletes need to remain at the center of that because it's uh, athletics and sports and that, that competition is a great space for it. It, it sort of can embody it very well. We have about five minutes left, and I hate to go back to something not as serious. What's that? Jeff has a complaint about the unwritten rules of baseball. (laughs) Oh, we're going to go there again? So as an analyst now for the Cubs on the postgame, again, you're flying everywhere all around the world. You're you're everywhere. You're out there. Um, Jeff would like you to write down all of the unwritten rules. Oh, my goodness. Because um, he watches. That's not true. No, he doesn't really want that. But it's an ongoing frustration of him. Um, go ahead. You, you take it. Well, no. I, I, look, I've, I've, read, I've read your commentary on, on unwritten rules. But some of them I just, in, in this day and age, I don't get. I understand that, that it's important to police yourselves. But I, I don't get some of the unwritten rules because society has changed. So when in Philadelphia we have Odubel Herrera, the culture that he comes from, the bat flip is just a way of expressing his excitement for doing something great. And, and, and you see pitchers that stand on the mound and, and want to drill the next batter. Because <laughs> of that unwritten rule Because of the unwritten rule. <laughs> and, and, and so it... It baffles me that, okay, you know, and I've heard other people just say succinctly, look, if you don't want somebody to flip their bat, strike them out. But or the bunning when you're up. Yes. So, seven and nothing. I know you, 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 right. you wrote about this it is, is if, if a team's up seven, nothing, which the twins were, and the guy decides to bunt because there's a shift on him. Why do the twins get upset? Because the twins instituted a shift because that was their maximum way of getting him out based on analytics and everything. So why shouldn't he take advantage of that shift? I that told you we were going to take down the level of seriousness yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's no, it's a fair question. Yeah. I, and I'm thinking of myself as a bunter speed guy, like what would I do? Now, it depends on whether you consider shifting anything other than an ordinary defense. I mean, Jeff that, doesn't like the shift. No, I hate right. the shift. Jeff, I, I actually so think they should be You stumbled into a whole right. other hour yeah. of conversation Right, so if you, if you see that as like regular defense, you're right. not like blitzing when you're up by 49. You just see it as like, oh, it's just defense. And the, the Twins made the argument, well, we, we could have stolen a base earlier and they let us steal it, but we didn't steal it out of respect. So that should tip off that we're kind of backing off. So we're playing sort of this backed-off baseball. And I, I agree, it, it's a slippery slope. But, um, 
you know, the shift has sort of made that conversation even more complicated, which is why, like, you talk about evolving. The shift adds a whole new chapter to unwritten rules, a whole new chapter. And I'm not on the field to really, like, lay that out. I can look from afar, but I, I'm sure it has the same thematics as any other issue around rules. But the spirit of them, I still support the idea of most of them are trying to uh, address sportsmanship, right? Being respectful to your opponent, respectful to your team, the game, history, uh, you know, safety, being safe. A lot of those rules are for that. Now, yes, the retaliation is probably where the big issues often, oh, why does the guy have to get hit in the head for that, or hit in the back or whatever? Right. That's where it kind of goes off the rails, and that's sometimes I have issue with that. But I do understand that. See, Jeff for, for the, agrees with you. But I he think has issues in with part. It. Yeah, <laughs> but, I think, but I think for the most part, it's it's uh, set up for sportsmanship and just fair play and and things that are actually positive and passing down. It does spill over a lot, and and I think that's where people get annoyed. Like, why is this guy you know throwing at this and why is he charging the mound? I mean, here's here's a beef I have. I grew up. I came up in an era where you could slide and knock the shortstop into left field. Oh, now you can't even go near the base and yeah. touch him. Right. So, if you're in the vicinity of the base and you right. happen to touch his leg, they may right. call you out for interference. What we saw with Brock Holt and, and whatever the Yankee. And game. I get they're trying to prevent injuries. Right. I understand that. But, but, but we're missing the acrobatics. Like Ozzie Smith, I tried to take him out once and I slid into, towards center field and he, he stepped inside. <laughs> what, you do a backflip? Yeah, I missed him by 40 feet. I mean, there was an artistry to like people getting out of the way. Right. And now they don't even expect it. And if they make any contact, it's raised, it's made people more sensitive to contact. So I have trouble with that because I grew up like, you know, you could run the catcher over and I understand why they have the rules. But, you know, I, certainly the middle infielders were trained to get out of the way where right. they drop down here and take your head off if you dare slide late. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think you lose something there, even though like I get the safety side, you, you just lose a lot of the artistry. And now, guys, I saw Profar, Jerks and Profar. The guy slid like 10 feet short of the base. He threw the ball and then tripped over him and then like almost got, like, had a concussion protocol. I was like, how does oh, really? it, the guy was laying yeah. on the ground and you tripped over the guy. <laughs> so that's, that's how little they expect contact. So it's a different day. Jeff may contact you after the show to write a new chapter, Unwritten Rules He Does Not Like. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> rather than just talking about them. Um, this was a lot of fun for us. Uh, we yeah, we love having me. you come in and talk. Uh, we love being able to to really expand on these topics a little bit. Um, you know, we talk on the show about how it's much more than balls and strikes. It's you know, it's it's lives that are impacted by what goes in and around sports. And um, you know, for us to have the opportunity to sit and talk about it with you, it you know, it's it's great. We really appreciate it. I do have one more less serious question. Uh -oh. So so uh, um, my my son, who is a huge baseball, Jason can tell you, is a huge baseball fan. I always say. It might have been the, the first words that should, came out of his mouth. I should host the show with Jeff's son yeah, rather than yeah, Jeff. We're going to be doing, we're actually starting to do a minor league show for oh, the nice. Phillies. Yeah, we're going to travel around. We're going to Lakewood this weekend. Yeah. Um, but so he saw that he saw that you are a uh, French toast aficionado. And oh, yeah. so he wanted to know what exactly is is it that you have to put in French toast that, that makes it different? What do you need in your French toast? Well, actually, you know, I all, am learning so you much. Can't in reveal, this you can't reveal a chef's secrets here. A chef in my own mind. Uh, so I, you know, Steam. but you know, it's it's very basic actually. Well, I grew up without. My mom didn't use eggs yeah. initially, and then I kind of learned to cook really? that way. She was like, "Well, like, you know, 
I didn't want to use all this like dozens of eggs every week on just French toast. So we had <laughs> egg free and it really offended my roommate in college, by the way. But now I use eggs. We're, we're going to have to let Doug call your son. Vanilla. As okay. well and, as well. Uh, yeah, vanilla is important. Yeah. Cinnamon. And give course, him some nutmeg. tips on French toast because the producer is giving me a signal that he wants us to get off the air. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week on The Heart of Sports. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.